Hey, this is John Gallagher with the AMAFIM, and you're listening to the Inside Line podcast on Vital MX. Hey, it's Guy B with Vital MX. John Gallagher may have the toughest gig in the sport. As the race director for the Monster Energy Supercross Series, he's part of the crew that has to make decisions and dispense penalties when things get out of line. Being a ref in any sport is tough, but judging from some of the comments we've seen in the forum lately, people misunderstand not only what he does, but some of the hows and whys that go into a lot of the decision-making process. That's why we asked John to sit down for a chat. We'll admit, we were teasing him a bit in the following intro. This is similar to what you'd hear if you were to attend the writer's meeting each week when he starts it with a motorsports are dangerous message. Anyway, listen in. Before we dive in, we've got to thank some brands that help support the show. The Inside Line is presented by Thor. Since 1968, Thor MX has been supporting some of the world's most elite racers, including the 2018 250 Pro Motocross champion, Aaron Plessinger. Head to ThorMX.com to see the racewear that Aaron and the rest of the Star Racing Yamaha team trust day in and day out. We also have to thank Chaparral Motorsports, who have been helping riders outfit their dirt bikes with parts, accessories, and tires for more than 30 years. Today, Chapmoto offers professional advice online and in-store, helping you find the best riding gear and equipment for all your power sports vehicles. Visit ChapMoto.com today. That's C-H-A-P-Moto.com. We also have to thank Maxxis Tires, who are proud to introduce the all-new Maxxcross MX-ST, a premier motocross tire tested and developed by the king, Jeremy McGrath. Available now at your local dealer. All right, John, as we all know, podcasts are dangerous, so if you have the chance to opt out here if you feel like this is too dangerous. so No, I get it. There's a, there's a lot that people are, are interested in with how race officiation works, and I'm more than happy to explain to anybody that is willing to ask. Well, you and I have known each other for a long time, like way back to our high school days. We both also worked at Krona Raceway uh, with Ron Crandall out there, who was not only running the races, but he was also our high school biology teacher and uh, advisor for the motocross team. That's true. Um, I ended up being involved in the officiation side of racing really early on in life. It was more than just uh, the ability to be able to be at the races all the time. It was also an interest of mine because a mentor of mine, Ron Crandall, saw a different side of why officiation is so important. And uh, he explained to me many things that um, some races that were officiated incorrectly, why that was so, and explained to me other directions to go. In many cases, early races that I officiated in, that phone call on Sunday waiting at the airport would be to Ron Crandall to talk, ask him about, uh, hey, this, something, this thing came up and I was interested in uh, your opinion on the way that I handled it and the way that maybe you would have handled it or maybe we would have handled it the same way. So those kind of things were very helpful for me. Yeah, Ron, after the the school teaching days, and and probably even while he was still doing it, became the AMA referee, and and he kind of has the same job you have now, but back in the day. That's correct. Uh, He was uh, closely affiliated with the FIM as well. We were doing uh, international events even back then. Roger DeCoster did one over at uh, Glen Helen. I was involved in uh, the ones that were early on in Carlsbad, and those were very exciting days for me. Obviously, you know, when you're teething and getting started early on in life, I mean, I was 15, 16 years old when I first uh, worked at my first Supercross, you uh, clearly don't have the grasp of how important this job is until you get more heavily involved in it. But with regard to the early days, Ron kind of walked us all through what was going on, and we talked about it after the fact. Yeah, he was, he was an interesting character. 
I miss him a lot. He uh, he was one of my mentors. Obviously, Roy Jansen was a big part of my life. Obviously, my pe- my father was a big portion of my life. Um, he's the one that prompted me into heading into the fields of motorcycle technology and learning more about that. That's where my degree was. And we had a high school motocross team back in the day, which was a little unusual. People don't believe when I tell them that high school had interscholastic motocross. And when I when I say that, I say, you know, like a football team has a booster club and a booster club has to make um, money for things that the whole team will get to use. Our booster club went and worked for Mike Goodwin and um, instead of paying individuals to go do individual tasks, he paid a group like our motocross team to go do those same tasks. And then we could buy things for the team that made our team more successful. So it worked identically to the way a football team works with their booster club, only we worked supercross races to make money for our team. How did you end up where you're at? You know, I'd, I know a little of the progression, but I think you kind of re- did the same program at Arena Cross, and mm-hmm. you've also done it for Enduro Cross. I did that be- even before that. Uh, when when uh, Corona Raceway was going, I branched out on my own and worked for the California Racing Club with the Barbacovies in Southern California. Uh, quad racing and um, three-wheeler racing and Odyssey racing was a very big part of the world back in the early 80s. And uh, I had a good feel for that. Ron had been doing that at Corona Raceway, and the Barbacovies wanted to continue that in other types of in other race tracks. So I got asked to be involved in those and handle that program with uh, CRC almost for 10 years. The continuation went on with doing flat track. I officiated flat track. I did some road racing events. Um, I also worked for Mike Kidd in the Arena Cross Series for quite a while. Uh, Mike also was doing flat track for uh, Pace Motorsports before it became Feld Entertainment. And uh, I was involved heavily with, uh, with that as well. So it's a pretty r- well-rounded uh, type of environment. But what I gathered from each of those wasn't um, wasn't necessarily a new way of officiating it was building on a way that to take the good parts out of each one of them and bring them to the next type of racing what's the process for becoming an fim official when i was asked to become an official for this series roy jansen had been posed a question um, most people know the story about the battle between the ama and the fim and and the promoter and there was a time when everybody not just me but everybody got caught up in this um this legal battle that was going on. Um, Roy was asked a question from the FIM when they were offering a world championship, and that was we wanted um, somebody with four criteria. One, someone who's worked with the AMA before, done AMA races. Two, somebody who had been involved in international races before. I'd, I'd worked quite a few international races between Carlsbad and with Roger at Glen Helen. Number three, somebody who understood the friction between the AMA and the FIM and and Pace back then or, or Clear Channel back then. That was a big portion of this discussion that treading lightly was important and certainly not to make a greater rift than already there was. And most importantly, somebody who understood supercross racing. That was the biggest uh, question that the FIM had. They definitely wanted an American because supercross is mostly an American sport and they were interested in having somebody involved that had those those four different backgrounds and Roy said I only have one person that's that's me I know you have situations where you have to go back and have clinics and meetings with the FIM is it almost like a continuing education thing I mean that's the general idea that it's a continuing education 
However, what it really is, it's a number of race directors that all get together in different um, parts of the FIM that get together and provide different backgrounds, different things that they've done throughout that year. Well, we, we do 18 rounds throughout the summer. That's the 17 rounds for Supercross and, of course, the Monster Energy Cup. Those are all very big events in, in the United States. And so in many cases, I go to these to provide content. Now, that's not saying I don't, draw, I don't take away anything from each of these, these seminars. They happen once a year in November when the off-season starts, and folks that are doing MXGPs are there. I do MXGPs as well, so it's very helpful to interact with the other guys that have done clerk-of-the-course jobs throughout the year. We interact with each other and share stuff that's happened throughout the year, and there's a race director for MXGP that is helpful to, for me to talk to, and we'll talk about things that have happened with each of our series and how we handle that. People seem genuinely confused about how Marvin could have been penalized points but still keep the win. That's not a new thing, though. No, it's not a new thing. We, we, uh, the, the rule was written differently three years ago. We ended up with a, a winner of a race, Ryan Dungey, jumping on a Red Cross flag, and he ended up losing the win. There was a lot of concern or issues related to that that involved not only um, Ryan losing the win and what that entails with regard to his own team, but also the fans that watch TV and the fans that were present um, that left the stadium all expected Ryan to be the winner. And then after the race was done, the, the win was pulled from him. There's also a feeling that there's an inequity of the winner losing the win compared to, say, 16th place losing the win or losing 16th place for identically the same, the same penalty. And there was an inequity in the penalties because of just the position. Now, that's a huge inequity. So there was discussion made between the partners in Supercross, Feld, the teams, and the AMA and the FIM about how that could be made better. Instead, it was made more uniformed by having a specific points adjustment with a weighting of points more towards a win than um, a middle-of-the-pack finish. And it seemed more equitable across the board. I was not involved in the decision-making of that um, change in rules from three years ago. However, when Marvin was penalized, I was following the rule book. So... I guess there could be a debate about what the way the rule book's written, but the reality is there's three things that have to happen when um, a rider um, apparently does a penalty. One is it has to be justified. In other words, we have to look at it um, to make sure the rider saw the flag. The flag was displayed properly. And secondly, we have to look at intent. There was a discussion about that and whether he had something else going on, he was avoiding another rider. Or we have to look at what happened. Then, secondly, we have to make sure we tell the rider that this is becoming an issue, and regardless of whether he goes up on the podium and takes a win, takes a trophy, we still have to let him know that this is being looked at. And then, lastly, we have to go through the exact same criteria that we go through with any penalty, and that's let the rider have his day in court, so to speak. We have to let the rider know that this is what rule was broken, this is the penalty for it, and do you have anything to say for yourself? You certainly can't do that between when the rider wipes the sweat off his brow immediately after a race and he goes up on the podium. So there has to be something that, that there has to be some time that happens after that. And that's what, exactly what happened with regard to that race a couple weeks ago. I think something that's also changed up over the last few years is the race direction. How do those decisions work? Uh, two years ago, there's a, there's a lot that's going on on the floor of the race, with uh, the race director up until two years ago. And two years ago, there's been, there was a decision to go more along the lines of what the MXGPs, uh, how they work. 
It's instead of a race director exclusively making all the decisions regarding um, not just penalties and the riders, but also track adjustments and um, changes to parts of the track that are unsafe or, or um, even prioritizing where we do track maintenance. The decision was two years ago to make it a race direction uh, type of environment instead of a race director. I'm still the race director. However, there's a three-man race direction team that uh, looks at each incident and discusses it on the radio. And we make decisions across those three people. One is a uh, ex-factory mechanic. He's our tech, tech director. One of them is um, a pro, an ex-pro rider and myself. And I've got a lot of experience, obviously, with Supercross. What kind of tools do you have at your disposal to help make decisions? What, what we get told many times for guys that come in that are not part of our series is they're surprised at how much we have available to us in such a short amount of time. And that's because we have so many cameras on the floor that are capable of providing us with video either instantly or on a memory stick. And after the, afterwards, I can bring it up on a computer or a screen in the AMA truck to talk to the rider about it. But we have an ISO camera, not only in the scoring booth, but also up in the top, uh, up in the tower. And there's people up there that are also looking at incidents that we can um, do instant replay on that aren't necessarily shown on TV. There are many cuts of the exact same incident that are not shown on the telecast that we get to see other angles and also multiple angles and in slow motion. Those are all very helpful for looking at a rider's intent and also with regard to exactly what happened. How about when guys run off the track, you know, Cooper in Indy, uh, as an example, people seem to revert to the classic re-enter where you went off the track. That That's kind of the old school way. How does it work now? I'd, I'd love to sit down with somebody who reverts to that old school way of um, re-entering the track where you left it with regard to the Cooper incident. That's a prime example of why that doesn't work with Supercross. In many cases, trying to re-enter the racetrack where you left it would be a more dangerous situation than the way the rule is written now. Re-entering the track with the understanding that you're racing other competitors and us making a, a subjective judgment of whether the rider's intent was to make it right again is better for everybody. And once again, we're not necessarily talking about amateur racing and we're not talking about big open stadiums or facilities that have lots of space between the lanes. In the case of Cooper, we had no space between the lanes, so there's no way that he could re-enter where he left the track there. However, with regard to many of the judgment calls, the, the, the biggest issue of all is whether the rider actually gained an advantage, in our opinion, with regard to the riders that he was competing against. And that's where the judgment gets questioned in many cases by fans. Unfortunately, we're making those decisions with regard to what is best for our sport and also what's best for the paddock. And we got to make sure that we have that criteria at least in agreement. There's definitely going to be judgments that people aren't going to agree, agree with, and we get that. That's not a problem. We have to make sure that we just get this uh, as right as we can with regard to the time span that we have and then move on. On the other hand, when guys do run off the track, you don't want them pinning it and gaining advantage out there. What I try and say in the writers' meeting is that the area that's off the racetrack isn't considered racetrack. So... If a rider is going to end up going for an extended amount of time off the track to get back on the racetrack again, he has to think of that as our world, meaning the officials, the medical staff, and those guys that are running out and picking guys back up again. Plus, we have lots of television equipment that's uh, on the side of the racetrack, and the rider can be a more danger using off-the-racetrack areas as racetrack than 
then he realizes. So in that case, we try and make it imperative to the riders that they have to get back on the racetrack as soon as they can, meaning not run a whole entire length of a stadium if it's possible. And second, do it in a safe place so they don't get hit by riders that are at full speed. Yeah, I'm actually out there with one of, the, one of those guys that yeah, yeah. Uh, can be dodging bikes. So, How much feedback do you get from Feld when it comes to making decisions? We don't ever get feedback from Feld while the decision's being made. Not in all the time in the 18 years I've been involved, um, specifically with FIM Race Direction, has Feld said that something needs to happen before the decision was made. The only thing that Feld wants to know is after the decision's made, they want to know what that decision was. And in many cases, these decisions can change either um, either purse results or change points results, and they just want to get it right with regard to their social media. But with regard to anything that Feld says, you know, you got to make that guy get back in points because of something or whatever, that not ever, ever has that happened and has never been an issue with, um, with officiating with either the AMA or the FIM. Sometimes I think the fans also think Monster has some influence in decision-making, too. Uh, that's, that's laughable. I mean, literally the only time I've ever interacted with Monster was we have a sticker that goes across the top of the number plate. And in many cases, a team, another team that isn't Monster, would like to have their bikes displayed underneath their tent with not the Monster logo on top of their number plate. Um, when it goes back on the track, they, come, they abide by our rules in, many, in most cases. Occasionally, a mechanic will get busy. He'll forget. He won't have the logo sticker for Monster that's mandatory for the rider to get paid. And he goes out on the track, and we get a picture later from one of the photographers that shows that the Monster logo isn't on there. I've actually gotten one phone call in the whole entire time I've been doing this from then the director of racing at Monster who said, hey, listen, this whole Monster logo thing on a, on a Rockstar bike or on a, on a Red Bull bike is not that big of a deal to us. Please don't go so hard on the rider. It was a mistake and just let it go. And we have a criteria for what we're supposed to do, and Monster in- indicated that that really isn't nearly as important to us. Uh, clearly a, a Monster logo in a ba- vast array of another brand's um, energy drink doesn't end up selling more Monster for them, so they weren't that worried about it. How much discussion do you have with riders and teams? You know, For example, I saw you recently chatting with uh, Roger DeCoster and Eric Kehoe, uh, for example, at the Seattle race. The interaction at the Seattle race uh, with Roger was to let him know that um, one, of his, um, one of his riders was, had something under review. That was Marvin. Um, the interaction with, uh, with Eric Kehoe, and this happens often, is that when something happens on the racetrack, like Marvin's situation with jumping on the Red Cross, um, not only the officials saw it, TV saw it, photographers, I think some even got pictures of it, but also the other, the other team managers certainly see it. And they, at the very least, want to let us know that if we have not noticed it, then they'd like to maybe possibly put in a protest. In the case of Eric, he was just asking me, did we notice that that happened on the start of the race? Um, if I went, no, I didn't know what happened, he'd either say one of two things. Either he'd say, hey, listen, you might want to pull some video to look at it, or the second thing he'd say is, it definitely happened and we'd like to, we'd like to protest the, that position or that penalty. That rarely happens because there's so many officials that are on the floor, we pretty much catch everything live, and then we just grab TV to verify it. And uh, as far as your question goes with communicating with team managers, that happens probably 30 or 40 times a, a race with 
with regard to stuff that they noticed on the track during track walk or something they've noticed uh, that happened during a heat or a or even practice. So that's, that's, there's a lot of interaction with our partners, and we make sure that they, they know what's going on. It, it's funny, the ex- example I was thinking of actually was before the race. I think they were talking to you about a, a section that they thought might be dangerous and were maybe looking for a track change. Actually, sh- Seattle created a, a bunch of questions from a lot of riders after the track walk, and Rider's input is extremely helpful for us uh, after the track walk. In many cases, that's the first time the riders have seen the track. Um, if you notice the schedule, there's a half hour after the uh, riders meeting and the uh, devotional. And that half hour was built in there for a couple of reasons. One is the riders that are in the very first practice session need to go back to their trucks, get their bikes, and get geared up. But more importantly, it gives us a chance to go look at some ideas that riders had or some things that may not have been the best choice or even to fix a rock that's sticking out or something that we didn't notice. In the case of Seattle, there was a couple things that were brought to my attention during the riders' meeting that were really easy fixes and went to the track crew. They said, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and we took care of that. With Arena Cross, I'm sure you had no shortage of uh, full contact decisions to make. Yeah, Arena Cross was a pretty wild time when I worked when I worked as a race director for Arena Cross. There was um, there was real estate was in very short supply on an Arena Cross track, uh, and it ended up creating um, not only that the time that a race uh, was run was much shorter than Supercross, so things had to happen really quickly. Um, during the time that I was there, it was mostly two strokes, and that, that changed the way the dynamic of racing as well. Um, it was a fun time, though, and, and uh, I think that there were some things that went on in Arena Cross that carried over into Supercross, so you see it even happening now, and certainly stuff that happens at Supercross would never happen at an MXGP. How, where do you draw the line on contact? You know, for example, it was interesting to see Tyler Bowers uh, post on Instagram, and he he had an example of his contact, I think it was in uh, Dallas, use a similar video, but it looked like, to me, it was a rider out of control making a similar type of contact. How, how do you determine that? Well, certainly if you take a single photo out of a video, you can draw a different conclusion than if you saw the whole video. And you can have a completely different argument out of one frame, out of a, out of a few-second video, than if you saw the whole video. I think many people saw, you know, Tyler and, and Justin get uh, get into it at, at the race that Tyler was penalized for, and that clearly was a different line of reasoning than some of the stuff that had come out after. I did not see the video that Tyler had posted. I'm, I'm not aware of what you're talking about, but I think um, the big question here is whether intent is involved in a decision-making process, and clearly intent is a large portion of what happens if a rider is off the pegs, you know, and he's uh, hanging over the back fender and he bumps into a rider, that's a whole different scenario than if he's looking directly at the rider and turns right up into a rider that's in a left-hand turn. Those are two different uh, scenarios and those kinds of things we, we look at very seriously. Is it always black and white? Do you, do you have to determine an intent? No, I think that it's never, I mean, it's, it's, it's not always black and white. And more importantly, um, that's a large portion of officiating that Ron brought to my life was that set yourself in the other man's shoes. And it's easy to do that if you can have an open mind about both guys' intents. And look, and look at what they're doing, look at what they're thinking about, and look at what, what situation they were in when they did it. And in many cases, we'll watch videos multiple times and in slow motion to help us make that kind of decision. That's really important. And 
I think that uh, the idea of of watching what the rider did prior to the incident that created the collision is a large portion of what ultimately will tell you what's going on. How much does previous history factor into penalty decisions? Um, you know, is it the same for first-timers as it is for kind of repeat offenders? No, it absolutely isn't. And a, a good example of that is um, what's been going on with race direction in the last two years. In many cases, if you look at, uh, we have a, um, a list of penalties that have taken place in every single race this year. And it's provided back to the teams. And in a first-time offense, in many cases, depending on the severity of the offense, a rider that decides to bar bang a little more aggressively than what is acceptable in our sport, he'll end up with a, with a, uh, with a warning. But a written warning is a good stepping stone into a further penalty, which we fully explained to the rider, that if it was something that we required him to come to the truck, we actually wrote out a written warning, had him sign it, Make him clear, make it clear to him through the video that we showed him that that's um, not tolerated, and that somebody can get hurt with that. And a lot of those things have to do with retaliation. If a rider, uh, say, felt that something you know wasn't quite right with regard to how he was treated, he immediately responds back to a rider in the next corner with a clear retaliation. That type of thing is looked at um, quite seriously, and the rider is warned. Um, if it's something that a rider does repeatedly over and over again, then the warning will have happened. Um, long ago, and we'll be talking about much further penalties after that. How do new rules for each Supercross season get implemented? In many cases, uh, there's a running tally of incidents that have taken place. Like, I'll give you an example. Last weekend, we had a, a bridge that we only get one or two times a year. The bridge, the over part of the bridge, has is always a kicker jump up and over the top to, a, to ramp to ramp. And it's never been an issue. We've never had a problem with with the bridge we used to treat it as a triple because it's a blind jump but it's always so easy that we've never had an issue with somebody crashing so we backed off of treating it as a as a triple jump with red lights and a red cross flag and and let the yellow flaggers handle that type of a situation last week there was a yellow flagger on the back side of the jump that was waving a yellow flag to alert in the flagger on the front side of the jump to wave his flag which is he did his job perfectly he did exactly what he was supposed to do the only problem was that we needed to direct the riders from side to side we learned a lesson on that we're going to put red red cross flags and red uh, lights out on the bridge every time it's out and make sure that there's radios on both ends to direct the riders right or left adam was in a bad situation playing leapfrog like that wasn't um, wasn't really good for him and certainly was dangerous and we like to make sure that doesn't happen so those kinds of things, back to your question about the writers, about the rule book, is that we um, get things that happen that aren't necessarily in the rule book and either implement them in the rule book or at least implement a, a policy for those type of um, situations. But every single year our rule book has little marks in it at the end of the season that show things that might be worded differently or something that just wasn't covered at all and we'll adjust it. We also take into account many much information from the other teams where teams point out something that they might have noticed in the rule book. They read these rule books intensely and make sure that they know the rules but also they point out some things in many cases that are helpful for us and the other thing too is we'll ask questions. Go to the teams and say hey does this work? You think this worked uh, in this case from the previous year? If it doesn't then we can adjust that. And, of course, Feld is a large portion of, of that. Like, um, there are things that bother them, not having riders on the podium at the end of the night, riders that uh, may use the doghouse in the middle of the starting gate as a, 
as a uh, as an outhouse instead of using the outhouses that are provided and that those kinds of things can't happen and they affect the promoter and they can affect the promoter um, in a very adverse way so we'll adjust the rules to accommodate that yeah and there's collaboration between all the parties involved usually am i correct that's the part that most people aren't aware is that you can be a partner in a race series and not have adverse collaboration i mean just because roger or, or eric or 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 Feld or somebody from Monster comes by and makes a comment or there's an adjustment, it's to, for the betterment of the sport. It doesn't necessarily better their company. I mean, and Roger's been around for a long time. He represents our nation for the Motocross of Nations, and he um, he's a very fair person. And in some cases, he'll come to me flat out saying that um, there's something one of his riders did that may not necessarily be right and that we probably should look into that for a rule change for the next year. So. What's the most effective penalty? Is it points? Is it dollars? Or does it vary depending on the situation? We had a symposium uh, in December with uh, younger riders and also some of the other riders. We did a lot of things with them for three days. Pictures for future information that we're putting out were paired up with different charities that we wanted them involved in. There's um, lots of video stuff that we did uh, with them ahead of time in the beginning of the before the Anaheim one and then we also sat the riders down showed them different racetracks and some of the things that we changed because the 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 issues are either don't work well for racing or become unsafe and lastly we run some rule changes by them and in some cases we'll talk about specific philosophy on that and your question has to do with what changes behavior and really that's that's the whole point of penalties is just to change a rider's behavior and make it clear that that's unacceptable we don't want to take a rider out of a series a penalty taking him completely out of a series doesn't benefit anybody including his team and our our series but more importantly just to let the rider know that that that's that's really important that that doesn't happen again now with regard to whether it's money or points or or disqualification or whatever has to do with one the severity of the of the of the infraction but more importantly, what's ultimately going to do what I said, and that's change behavior. In some riders' situations, they they really have plenty of money. And the idea of losing a large amount of money for the average person, but to them not so average, uh, is not a big deal. On the other side, a couple of points means the difference between a championship or not a championship. And so you'll see variations in um, penalties over points over purse depending on what the rider's motivation is. Now, the big thing here is that the rider, the rule book is starting to become more written to accommodate both ends of that. So, like as an example, Marvin's situation involved points and purse. The purse probably wasn't all that important for Marvin, but those few points was very important for Marvin. And in many cases, we're writing the rule book in such a way that it accommodates both ends of that spectrum to make it so the motivation is more... Um, evenly spaced between riders that points is more important over money do you sometimes feel like you're an impossible situation you know no matter what you do you're going to make somebody unhappy um that's a that's an ongoing discussion is that and even riders will say that when we talk about well how would you handle a situation say i wouldn't want your job is what usually the answer is but as far as an impossible situation i think we're making headway there's when i first started doing this 18 years ago there was a lot, when I first started doing the FIM portion of it 18 years ago, there was a lot of animosity between the riders and the AMA truck. And I don't think we got that, we have that nearly as much as we had in the past. 
But more importantly, I think we're making headway with a lot of things. The promoter and the relationship with AMA is, is much better than it was when I first started. And, and a lot of that animosity was due to certainly things that were happening far beyond the issues at the racetrack. It was more political. But I think that uh, the, rela- the relationship across the board in the, in the pits is much healthier than it's ever been. Well, I appreciate the time here, and uh, let's go racing tomorrow. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Another day. I'm really into it. Thanks. Okay, there you go. Hopefully you have a little bit better understanding of John's gig and how decisions are made. As always, you're free to comment, but let's keep it social, not antisocial. Before we head out, we have to thank our sponsors. The Inside Line is presented by Thor. Remember, for over 50 years, Thor MX has been at the forefront of motocross racewear innovation with products that are purpose-built to help riders perform at the highest level in one of the most demanding sports in the world. The 2019 collection, featuring the revolutionary Prime Pro racewear, is available now. Head to thormx.com to learn more. We also have to thank Chaparral Motorsports. For more than 30 years, Chaparral Motorsports has been sharing its love of dirt bikes with like-minded individuals by offering a massive selection of the latest riding gear, new models, parts and accessories, and great pricing on tires. Visit chapmoto.com. Also, Maxxis Tires is proud to introduce the all-new Maxxcross MXST, a premier motocross tire tested and developed by the king, Jeremy McGrath. Available now at your local dealer. Ready for some more bench racing? Look for the next Inside Line soon. In the meantime, you can subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss any future episodes. You can also go back and listen to previous shows. If you're feeling really generous, leaving us a rating and review always helps. Thanks.